Welcome to the Level Up English podcast, the best place to come to practice the English language, learn about the British accent and culture. With me, your host, Michael Lavers. Hello, English learners, and welcome back to the Level Up English podcast. I have a great conversation for you today. It's one that I really enjoyed, and I'm sure you will as well. Today, I talked with Gregory Deal, who has a lot of experience teaching English in countries all around the world, which we touch on briefly in the conversation. And he's also an author. So we talk a lot about his book, which is available now. It's a new book out in 2023. And this is called Our Global Lingua Franca, an educator's guide to spreading English where EFL doesn't work. I listened to the audio version of the book and it was really enjoyable, very easy to follow because Gregory has a very clear, easy to follow way of speaking and a nice, clear accent. And although he does say in the episode it's aimed at educators and teachers, I actually think it would be also beneficial for learners as well, which is another reason why we're talking about it today. So in the episode today, we talk about lots of things from the book, such as the failures of the kind of standard schooling system, the standard system of education. We talk about some of the drawbacks and the problems with the way that English is taught these days and Gregory's experience with that. We also talk about some methods of improving your English or improving any language you're learning, really, that kind of goes against this traditional classroom method. And we talk about things such as immersion and a technique that Gregory used to help teach someone to read using the guitar. That's very interesting. And a really, really important thing that I'm excited to share, which is right at the end, so you'll have to listen to the end to hear this part, is about accent and pronunciation. And why a lot of people might be making this mistake with trying to copy someone else's accent. And there's a really, really good quote that I took from the book to talk about uh, compared to singing, which is interesting. So lots to take away from this conversation. I really, really do hope you enjoy it. If you do want to find out more, then the links to the book will be in the description. And obviously we talk about that more later as well. If you have any issues following our conversation with my British and Gregory's American accent, then maybe the transcripts could be helpful for you. Remember, the transcripts are available for Level Up English members. So you can go onto the website in the link on your podcast app, sign up, become a member, and you get access to all of the transcripts, like subtitles for every episode. If that's interesting for you, tap on that link. Otherwise, let's get into the episode, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Level Up English podcast. I am very happy to be joined today by Gregory, and we'll be talking today about his book that should be already out by the time this episode comes out. I will have given you a bit of an intro before, Gregory, but perhaps would you like to uh, give your own intro in your own words for those who don't know who you are? Yes. So, hi, I'm Gregory Deal. Uh, I'm an author who writes on many subjects related to business and personal development and education and travel. And a lot of that has culminated in my most recent book, which is a book based on my experience 
trying to improve English fluency around the world called Our Global Lingua Franca, an educator's guide to spreading English where EFL doesn't work. So it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really a combination of many types of books. It's not strictly about education, but also about the social and humanitarian effects of helping the world to communicate in the most popular shared language around the world and why there seems to be this strange situation where although many, many people want to learn English because they see the obvious benefits, not very many people seem to be very good at actually teaching it. There's a, there's a huge disconnect between the, the effort, the attempt, and the actual results of, well, I define results as at least conversational fluency, if not true fluency, and that seems really hard to do under the current model. Yeah. So I, I think it, it seems to me like it would be a really good book for both uh, English learners and teachers, I would imagine. Yes, that that has surprised me actually, because since mm. since I've printed the book, I've used it as reference material in some of oh. the private lessons and group lessons I've taught. And every student, no matter what country they're in or what level they're at, has told me, "You have perfectly captured my frustrations trying to learn English in school, and you're finally explaining all the little things that prevent me from getting better at English." So, yeah, it, it actually has even learners who are good enough to understand the material have told me they've gained a lot from it. Hmm. Yeah, so, so you talk about a lot of the, uh, I guess, the drawbacks in uh, the way English is taught in, in most schools around the world these days. And, and I guess why it is such a detailed and, and good book is because of your experience. You spoke a bit about that in the book, and I know a little bit about it. But could you tell us a bit about your, your background, like maybe what got you into teaching and some of the, the coolest or most unusual places you've taught English before? Yeah, sure. Well, I think what makes the book unique and valuable is that I don't have conventional education credentials for the most part. I am TEFL certified, but that's kind of incidental. I don't really credit my teaching competence to that. I never went to university, never got a teaching degree or any degree. I started traveling the world when I was 18, just out of curiosity and passion. And I fell into English teaching because it was a really easy way for a young American native English speaker to make money while he traveled. But I also do have an inherent passion for education and helping people communicate and think better. And so over the first several years of hopping around to whatever countries would hire me, which includes places like Iraq and China and Italy and the Philippines and Ghana, uh, so, you know, so a fairly wide variety of places, not just localized in one part of the world, I was amazed by how I kept seeing the same obvious mistakes in the way people were approaching teaching English to children, to adults, to whoever. And at first I thought there must be something wrong with me because these guys are the professionals. These guys have all the right training and credentials and these guys have really impressive schools. And doesn't it sound absurd, the idea that everyone in the world could be doing something wrong? <laughs> Isn't, I mean, I must be crazy, right? Like, how one guy versus seven billion, I must be wrong, right? But I kept seeing these things. And eventually, I started documenting them and, and trying to examine why people teach this way and why this isn't an, an effective way to get people actually thinking in English and using English. And more and more people kept agreeing with me. And as I finally started putting the book together and showing it to beta readers, to other English teachers and English learners, more and more people kept saying, you have finally captured what has frustrated me for 10 plus years of me trying to teach or learn English. So I knew 
I was on to something eventually. And that, and I think that's because I'm coming at it from an outsider's perspective, just as somebody who's very passionate about language, very passionate about explaining important things, very passionate about social development and seeing what makes our world work. So you will find things in here that probably you will not find in any conventional academic text about how to teach English. Mm, okay, great. So it sounds like your, I guess your love for travel was the thing that sparked everything that sparked you down this path perhaps and then your curiosity led you further is that would that be correct to say yeah it was a combination of a few kinds of passions and curiosities one was exploration one was the spread of useful knowledge uh spreading social harmony and function which is why i'm so passionate about spreading english in particular because as i explained in the introduction of the book i think Helping more people speak English well is probably one of the most effective things you could do to contribute to social order in the world. It would increase social and economic activities for people all over the world. It would help us all get more of what we want for less effort and decrease confusion around the world. I can't think of a single initiative you could get behind that would accomplish as much good with as little required effort and costs along the way than helping more people speak English. That's a really good point. I feel like a lot of the problems in the world are caused by just a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't understand another culture and another way of life. And of course, if they did speak English, you would, you know, you'd understand them a lot more. I, I often feel like between the US and the UK, for example, it doesn't feel that different because we speak a similar, you know, mostly similar language. Mm -hmm. um, but... I think, in fact, the culture is actually quite different. There's a lot of differences, but we often don't see them just because we speak the same language, which that's my opinion anyway. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I feel like that, that's a really good point for sure. Or even just um, consider, you know, if, if you live in a country, a fairly small country that only speaks a localized language, it's only used among a few million people, if even that. Like here, I live in Armenia currently, Eastern Europe. Population is less than three million. If you only speak Armenian, you are limited to communicating with just those three million people living right next to you. Of course, most of the Armenians also speak Russian to some degree because it's Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union. So that's kind of the regional lingua franca here. If you can speak Russian, you can talk to Georgians and Ukrainians and so on and so forth. Uh, but if you can speak English, which is what all the intelligent, educated young people strive to do here, you can communicate with the whole world. What if you have, you know, skills that you want to offer in the economy on the market, but you can only communicate those skills in Armenian? You can only participate in economic exchange with other people who also speak Armenian. Three million people who may or may not be in a position to hire you who to derive value from what you offer. What if people on the other side of the planet who speak English would highly value what you offer? Suddenly, you can offer competitive services on the market, right? That increases your standard of living and it gives the people who want to contract with you and buy things from you more options to get what they want, right? If everyone could do this to at least some minimally functional degree, I think there'd be a lot more harmony in the world. Mm. Yeah. So English is not just about, you know, talking to people from England or from the US. It's about talking to everyone around the world, because as you said, it's that lingua franca, that, that yes. kind of global language in a sense. Right. Yeah. Obviously, native English is kind of the standard that everyone aspires to, but the goal is never to sound flawlessly American or British or Australian, just because that's the native example, right? It's to be able to communicate clearly with others, right? Mm -hmm. Bad English is English that cannot be understood as intended by the people you're communicating with. Good English is that which can be understood as intended, and that can take many different forms. 
Mm, that's a good definition. Yeah. So, so do you have like a kind of what? What could I say? A really like, un- unforgettable experience or some place that comes to mind where you've taught before that uh, would be interesting to share? Yeah, a few. Um, <laughs> well, so an example of the social effects of learning English. I taught in China for several months, which was honestly one of the worst experiences of my life for a lot of reasons that I could get into, just seeing the cultural and social effects of living in a place like China. And I was ready to give up and leave the country because I just realized that I am never going to have a fulfilling experience here. I'm not going to enjoy my life here at all. These people's educational outcomes are not in line with mine. But right before I left, I started tutoring this 13-year-old girl and uh, actually like making significant progress on her English. And then I told her mother, I'm going to leave the country soon because I hate it here. She begged me to stay. She said, you are the first person who actually (laughs) explains English to my daughter and she's making significant progress towards fluency just from a few weeks of working with you. Can we hire you full time? Come live with us and teach our children English because (laughs) we don't know what else to do. This was a wealthy family. You'd think they'd have plenty of, of high class educational options in a nice part of the country. And meeting me was like a godsend for them just because I could actually help impart practical fluency to their children. And they were so desperate for their children to learn English because they wanted to immigrate to America because of all the social restrictions and authoritarian nature of living in China. They didn't want to raise their kids there anymore. And they knew they couldn't get out unless their kids were somewhat fluent in English. So, like, you know, it was a it was rewarding for me to see like how much these people valued my educational influence, but also it really dawned on me like how important this skill is for people in desperate situations who have no other option. If you mm-hmm. live in a less desirable part of the world where you feel like you don't want to raise your kids there because of the lifestyle they'll be exposed to because of the lack of freedoms they have, what options do you have to change that unless you can communicate with the rest of the world and make plans outside of that? Mm, yeah, that, that's that's such a good um, such a good story. I, I I imagine that felt really good as well when they asked you to stay. Like you, you know, you're doing yeah. something right. Well, it was yeah. a complete reversal where I felt like completely unappreciated and worthless trying to work with mm-hmm. conventional schools there to suddenly like somebody who values me. Like that's <laughs> that's a nice feeling, you know. Yeah. Um, here in Armenia, it's I've lived in Armenia now for four years, which was a big change. Before this, I was you know hopping around the country, digital nomad kind of lifestyle, living out of a suitcase for more than 10 years. Then I bought a house in a rural part of the country in a village here called Kalavan because the uh, I'm part Armenian. My grandmother was Armenian. It was easy to get citizenship here. And I, I like the country. I figured this is a good place to settle down for a while. And I, I chose this village in particular because they were promoting it as a place where they really want to spread progressive ideals. They want to introduce entrepreneurship. They want to teach their kids English and, and help modernize and improve the state of the village. And I said, well, that sounds like a really good place for someone like me to go and where I'd be appreciated. And I, I met with some of the politicians and the village elders said, you know, I can help teach English to the kids. I can help introduce business principles to the village. And only after I bought the house and moved in here did I realize these people are completely full of excuse my language in what way (laughs) it's all performative it's like they don't understand the words they're using like they understand that these words have a positive image that they sound really good that they get good press for the village but they don't actually understand the value of like improving entrepreneurship of teaching the kids english to any meaningful degree they just have a a standard bull 
English program where they memorize vocabulary words and learn how to say hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, and you, and that's the extent of their English teaching.、Mm-hmm. And I have tried to, to meet with the the people running the school here, you know, not trying to like take over their whole curriculum or anything, but just saying, you know, I'm a native English speaker. I'm an experienced teacher. It'd be really cool if we could get some kind of conversation group going, get the kids exposed to native English more, get them using it to express more organic thoughts, just really, really basic stuff. If you know anything about foreign language acquisition, for four years, they've been saying to me, you know, that's a great idea, Gregory. We should definitely do that sometime. Nothing has happened. <laughs> and, and I've now written a book explaining what's wrong with the way these kinds of people approach English. Strangers on the internet pay me a healthy hourly wage to, to teach them English. And here where I live, where I've, I've been for four years, I cannot convince these people that there is value in improving the way they teach English or even in just talking to a native speaker. Even if I wasn't a teacher, just talking to me to hear how native English is used, be more exposed to the language would be enormously valuable to people in a situation like this. There's a huge disconnect between what they say and what they actually understand and do. And I suspect that that is true in many parts of the world, not just here in Armenia. And that's part of what prevents the spread of better Teaching methods. People just do what they think they're supposed to do and they don't actually check and see if it's effectively teaching them English. It just gets them a passing score in school. And I guess old habits die hard as well. Like if it's something that's been done for a long time in a certain way,、yeah. um, people are reluctant to change because a, it's going to be more work. A traditionalist culture, particularly yeah, a post Soviet country, they have very fixed ways of thinking and doing things. And even Now, 30 years after the USSR, they, it's still so hard for them to adapt and, and embrace new ways of thinking and doing things.、Mm. So you've got, you've got your work cut out for you there. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 in some other parts of the country, you know, you have to. I have found people who are the exception, who understand the value in what I'm saying and saying, yes, we need a new way of, of approaching this subject. And so I'm trying to market the book here and spread more awareness, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, well, good luck. <laughs>、um, I, I don't want to. Get ahead of myself. Maybe we could come to some of your ideas and methods、uh, a bit later. But first of all, what are some of the examples of ways in which schools don't do a good job from what you've seen? Like, what are the problems, in your opinion, in traditional schooling、mm-hmm. and education in terms of English? So, yeah, there's many ways to answer that question. The first is to think about how they assess quality. Success, right? Which is usually, did you get a good grade on your tests? Did you pass the class? Did you graduate to the next level of schooling? What are most of those tests actually measuring? More often than not, it's can you recognize these English words, right? Can you circle the right word to fill in the blank here on this multiple choice test? It's very rarely anything to do with can you communicate. Practically and functionally, can you spontaneously express an idea in more than one way to communicate something of importance? Can you use English in your life to accomplish a task that you couldn't before? That's what actual practical conversational fluency is. Can you use language to accomplish something you care about? Because that's what provides the incentive to learn new words, to learn new grammatical structures, new way of phrasing things, to communicate with other people who speak the language and can help you accomplish something you value. That's why, in the very beginning of the book, in the preface, I say,、um, when meeting with a small group of Armenians here, but this, you know, I could have said this about almost any country I've taught in, they all recognized that even though most of them are forced to take like seven to ten years of English classes in school, 
the outcome of those seven to 10 years of forced study is that they can string a few sentences together. They can mm -hmm. recognize a few words out of context. That's what you get from 10 years of investment into learning something. And then you say, well, can't lots of people also speak English in every country you go to? Yeah, they can. But that's in spite of their schooling, not because of it. Almost everyone who actually gets conversationally fluent in English or better gets that way because they watch a lot of American movies or they meet foreigners and become friends with them or they want to play online video games on servers where people aren't speaking a local language like Armenian. They're speaking English or, you know, it's always due to something outside of school that gives them an organic reason to want to learn English and exposure to the language as it's actually used by English speakers. That's how people get good at English 99% of the time. So... Why do we keep on and insisting on enforcing 10 years of wasted time on something that more often than not just makes them worse at English because it might teach them explicitly wrong things about English and waste an enormous amount of their time or disincentivize them from wanting to actually learn English? How do we change that? Mm, yeah, I, I, I really liked that you said that in, in the book and obviously just now because um, that was my experience of school as well. You know, we, we learn um, French... French, Spanish, and German at like different stages of school in the UK. Mm -hmm. And yeah, all of them is, is very similar, right? It's like, practice these phrases, you're sitting in a dark room with a textbook. There's really no chance of like, uh, there's no opportunities to have immersion or to, or to practice mm -hmm. spontaneously. Um, really poor. And also here, I, I guess you've seen this in the countries you've been to as well, but like here in Thailand, for example, uh, it's really rare to find someone who can speak a decent level of English, like young or old, uh, the level of English here is not, it's not that good. And whenever I do meet someone who can speak English quite well, I always ask them like, why, how did you get your English so, so good? And, um, yeah, usually, as you said, it's going to be, oh, I, I like video games or, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I, I'm really passionate about traveling. I've been to the UK or it, it's something like that. It's never, oh, because I studied in school. Um, unfortunately yeah. it's never that reason. Yeah. Or so my parents were rich point. and hired me a private tutor who actually knew what they were doing, right? That's yeah. <laughs> the exception. That's not what most people are exposed to. It's, yeah. it's astounding. Like, it really makes you feel like I must be wrong about this because how could it be this bad all over the world? Like, that's, that's especially since the book has been released and I've shown it to English learners and English teachers all over the world. There's never been anybody so far who said to me, what are you talking about, Gregory? That's not what English education is like here at all. Like, are you crazy? Everyone has said, yeah, that's pretty much how it goes. But what can we do about it? Like, nobody has really strongly disagreed with me. At least people who have actually read the book. There are some people who kind of take offense to the idea that, that I know a better way to teach English than the professionals, you know, but those people don't actually read the book. They just assume I must be wrong, mm -hmm. right? Because it's arrogant of me to assume that I, I might have a, an interesting, useful take on something, right? Um, but have you ever noticed, like, sometimes you can be talking to someone who seems pretty good at English, like they can have a conversation, they can communicate basic ideas, and they seem like they think they're really good at English, but they're making really basic errors still. Mm -hmm. Like basic grammatical errors, basic pronunciation errors, using words and expressions the wrong way. And you can try to tell them, you know, because because you're an English teacher and you want to help them. And you say, actually, that's not how we say that. You know, that's not how we use that expression. Like a common one here in, in Armenia is they'll say, thanks God, instead of thank God. It's, that's always sounds funny to me because it sounds like you're talking to God. Like, hey, thanks, buddy. 
Thanks for that. <laughs> Let's go grab a beer sometime. Instead of like imperative or subjunctive, like you must thank God for this wonderful thing that has happened, which sounds much more important, like a command, you know? And I say to them, that's not the expression, actually. It's thank God. And they'll say, no, it's not. I say, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. And they'll say, yeah, but I've been saying it that way for 10 years. And that's how my teachers in school said it. I said, I don't know how to explain to you that your teachers in school have been saying it wrong for 10 years and they've taught you the wrong things. And that's just one example. It could be like really basic pronunciation errors or conjugation errors. And they won't believe you when you tell them that they've been saying it wrong their whole life and that their authority figures in school taught it to them the wrong way. And that a great amount of the standardized English education in almost any country isn't just ineffective. It's outright wrong. They are teaching them the wrong things and making them falsely confident in how they speak English. And it's really hard to convince them later on that they've been saying it wrong this whole time. Mm -hmm. And even if you do, I guess it's cemented by then. So it's much harder to unlearn that pattern. Yeah, it's fossilized. So, yeah, fossilized. I, I imagine yeah. what's happening there is maybe... Because it's, you know, thanks God is grammatically correct. It's just that exp in that expression, right. it's it's wrong, isn't it? So yes. maybe they've, they've learned yeah, from a textbook, this is grammatically fine, but they mm -hmm. haven't had enough experience of listening and immersion to know that that's not the right phrase. But so, that's a huge amount of the English errors people make all the time that make them sound foreign or not very good at English. They can, they'll say something that can be argued to be, well, it's grammatically valid. Like you can put words together in this order. Yeah. But the way you did it just sounds crazy or awkward or really confusing. Why did you use that word here in this context? Right. It sounds like you don't know what you're saying. Well, okay. But it's grammatically valid. It's an adjective and a noun and a verb. Okay. But that's, that's not what communication is. I put words together in a grammatically valid way, therefore I'm effectively communicating. It's understanding all the nuances of how you use words in a certain way, in a certain context, and how they'll be interpreted by other people. But of course, they don't teach those things, those pragmatic cultural aspects of communication, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it would be something like, you know, you could say long time no see, which which sounds a bit weird in English, but mm -hmm. that, that's, the, that's the natural way, but it's not, you know, generally grammatically correct that structure but this expression is is an exception i guess but if you were to say you know long time without seeing you also that could be grammatically mm -hmm. correct but that sounds very weird doesn't it because it's not yeah it's not the expression we use <laughs> but there's there's so, yeah. so much yeah. of effective communication in any language but particularly english that can really only be learned through cultural immersion practical immersion like uh, an example I give in the book is I was teaching terms related to driving a car to someone um, who was already pretty good at English, you know, steering wheel and, and brakes and, and gas and, and turn signals and so forth. And I said, okay, and then you step on the accelerator. She looked really confused. And I said, oh, sorry, I didn't explain accelerator is another term for the gas pedal. It makes the car accelerate. It makes it speed up. And then she said, okay, and then I step on the decelerator. <laughs> and I said, oh, actually, no, we don't use that word for the brake. She looked really confused. Why not? The gas makes the car accelerate, right? Speed up. The brake makes the car decelerate, slow down, right? And I said, yes, technically you're correct, but for some reason nobody calls the brake the decelerator. Do they in the UK? I don't know. In America, they definitely don't. No, I don't, don't. think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I don't know how to explain to her. That would just sound really weird to an American to call the step on the decelerator. But the accelerator 
sounds okay. It sounds normal. I don't know why. I don't know how to explain. It's just a weird cultural thing that there's no way you could derive that ahead of time because it seems like it makes sense that you could use both of those terms or neither of them. It's, that's just a cultural pragmatic thing about English that for some reason people have accepted this as a normal way to speak and this sounds odd to them. It would sound like you're like an engineer describing taking the car apart or, or how it works or something. But in casual conversation, it would make you sound really strange. That's the kind of thing that they really can't teach very well in classes. You just have to start functionally using the language and interacting with people who speak English to pick up on these little things about how people use it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as a learner myself, I've made that mistake so many times where I have picked up some word in a dictionary that has the exact meaning I want. There's one that I think of, I think, I forgot what it is now, but there's one in Japanese, which mean the word is something like getting off a train. That's like the mm -hmm. word in Japanese. And I used it when I went to Japan uh, with a friend and she was like, what, what did you say? And mm -hmm. apparently like it is technically correct, but no one says that it's just not yeah. a natural way. So I guess that's the importance of learning from context, learning through immersion not That's how I am in words. Armenian still. My Armenian is still fairly basic. And so I'll say something that to me pretty clearly communicates the idea I'm trying to get across. And people kind of chuckle. And I said, why are you laughing? What did I say wrong? Like, That's not how we say that. Why not? I don't know. It's just not how we say that. We use this word here instead. Okay. If you say so, like, <laughs> I don't know. I can't argue with you, you know? Um, I, I, it would be super arrogant of me as an Armenian learner to say, well, no, you're wrong. This is the correct way to say it, right? Like, you're the ones using like, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm adapting to your standard. I don't get to arbitrarily decide this is the correct way to say it. Right. Yeah. But I, I, guess, I guess it should be made clear. Like, you know, we, we don't want to make people feel scared about saying these wrong things. So like, even if you do say the wrong one or someone does say decelerate, decelerator, um, mm -hmm. first of all, it's, it can sound quite kind of endearing. It's kind of nice to hear these, these things. Like what I, I heard one recently um, they didn't know the word for toes, so they called them foot fingers, which is very cute and perfectly understandable. They, they say that I, in I know Spanish. what they mean. Yeah. Oh, do they? De, 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 de pie, finger, fingers of the foot, roughly. Oh, I that's believe. so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, maybe maybe they spoke Spanish. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think it's it's important to make these mistakes, isn't it? Because then you can get corrected and learn rather than mm -hmm. you know being afraid to make them at all. But um. I wanted to ask you then about some, actually what I wanted to ask you was about immersion. So we mentioned that word immersion mm. a lot and that that's come up on the podcast before as well. But uh, do you have any ideas on how students can get immersion, especially if you're not in the country like, like you are now? Well, so <laughs> this is one of those really strange teaching conventions that I don't understand. And it's not limited to just English because in the four years I've been in Armenia, I've tried to hire like five different Armenian teachers each time explaining to them the way that I know I will best learn Armenian. Because obviously if I know how to teach English well, I have a pretty good idea of how I will learn languages best too, even if I don't speak Armenian that well. Like the principle's the same, right, in any language. Mm -hmm. And I try to explain to them, I really just need you to like speak a lot of Armenian with me and help explain certain grammatical things I don't understand or clarify words that I don't know when I hear them. And they all say, oh yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then they never do it. They speak only in English with me when trying to teach me Armenian. And they say, well, just memorize these words. And I can't figure out why it's so hard to get Armenian teachers to speak 
are meaning with me when teaching me. It's like some, they're self-conscious about how they use the language or something. And then the same thing happens in the English classes here, whether from a native or a non-native English teacher. I'm not saying like non-native English teachers can't be very good teachers. I'm saying it's very strange that they will speak Armenian when teaching English and English when teaching Armenian. Wouldn't it be best for the, for in general, to use the language you're teaching as much as possible to the extent that it will be understood. That if you're teaching English, speak 90% of the time in English. If you're teaching Armenian, speak 90% of the time in Armenian. And the other 10% is when you actually need to help clarify something they don't understand and that they don't have enough command of the language to understand. So if you need to translate a word from English into Armenian, then yeah, do that. If you need to explain a complex grammatical function that they're not getting and compare it to something in the Armenian language, then yeah, okay, then use Armenian. But otherwise, if you're trying to teach English, why wouldn't you be speaking English? And why wouldn't you be encouraging them to be speaking English as much as possible? It's like such a simple, obvious idea, but it doesn't align with how the curriculum is taught here. I'm guessing because it makes it harder to manage and standardize across the whole country and, and monitor results, and which is all they care about, just arbitrary standardization and monitoring of results, not will this actually help the kids or the students learn practical English. Mm, okay, yeah, I guess it's also, it feels better if it's, if partly in your native language, because then you can kind of end the lesson and you can say, okay, I've learned these words and everything else I understood, like I, I got the lesson 100%. But if the lesson was in the language you were learning, then there's probably going to be some bits that you're not going to follow so easily and you're going to end the class feeling a bit like uncertain about some areas. So I, I imagine, I mean, that, that's my feeling anyway, when I listen to a lesson that also uses English, I end up feeling like happier about it, but also I mm -hmm. feel like I haven't learned as much. So it's yeah, You can always clarify, like, you know, use the, the language you're learning to the extent possible and then clarify, here's exactly yeah. what I meant when I said this, just in case you're confused, especially while they're still at the beginner level, right? And they don't have very much English mm -hmm. to use. But by the time they're intermediate speakers and certainly advanced speakers, you can be speaking almost entirely in English. And then when they say, wait, I didn't understand what you meant by that word. Wait, that was a really long, complicated sentence. Then you slow down, you explain it in a simpler way. And if necessary, you can still translate. The approach I almost always use now, uh, especially if I'm teaching a language that I myself, uh, teaching two speakers of a language that I myself don't speak very well, like the Armenian language, I, I speak English entirely as the native English teacher. And I usually have a non-native teaching assistant, like somebody from here in Armenia who learned English as a non-native speaker and is now fluent, who also speaks fluent Armenian. And so I'm speaking English the whole time, explaining things the best that I know how in English. And when the, the assistant teacher sees, oh, the students aren't quite getting what you're saying, or they have some cultural expectations that don't match what you're trying to describe. I remember being confused by this thing when I was learning English as an Armenian speaker. Let me explain to them in terms they will understand better. That's the best approach I found. Two teachers working together, preferably one native English speaker and one non-native who learned it as a foreign language. Then you kind of get the best of both worlds. Mm, that's what I was going to say too. You stole my expression, best of both mm -hmm. worlds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that. that. That's a good one. So I guess obviously that depends on the budget of the school to hire two teachers for one class, but ideally that yeah. would be the best situation in your opinion. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I've really kind of become cemented in the conclusion that progress is not going to happen within the conventional schooling system because there's just too much mm -hmm. bureaucracy, too, too much enmeshment in particular ways of doing things that even if 
like my experience here in Armenia, even if you can explain to these people why this would be a good idea and you offer your services for free to them, I will gladly help you for free. They do not have the bandwidth or the methodology capable of accommodating any kind of radical change. That's why I now work entirely independently because it's just impossible for me to try to communicate and collaborate with these people who who think they know what they're doing and refuse to open their mind to any other possibility. Very similar to me, that was my motivation for for, for teaching myself and, and teaching online as well. Is, is I, I had a terrible experience at school in languages and I, I, didn't, I didn't want anything to do with that. But um, I imagine probably most listeners to this podcast will already be quite familiar with this because they, they have obviously sought out the podcast on their own and they uh, are taking learning into their own hands a bit more. And of mm-hmm. course, listening, you know, if you're an English learner and you're listening to a conversation between you and I right now, then uh, you and me I might get my English wrong. Between anyway. you and me. Yeah. Object <laughs> pronoun. It's okay. Between, uh, between us right now, yeah. then uh, that's, that's good immersion too, isn't it? Uh, that's, you know, that's a good example of getting immersion and yeah. not you know, getting everything explained in your own language too. In the book, you spoke about a teaching method you had with a, uh, a young boy, I believe, involving mm. playing the guitar. Was it guitar? Yes. So this was a case of an illiterate 16-year-old boy, um, which is not a situation I'd ever encountered before. So I'm, I'm kind of operating outside my comfort zone. But I, mm. I, you know, it was a challenge I wanted to experiment with. Um, you know, they just the parents are the kind of people who grow up in a rural environment. They never sent any of their 10 or so kids to school. They just never saw a purpose to. Because that's just the way these people think and live in some places, you know, which we can say is like child abuse and awful and horrible and neglectful, but that's just what they do. But I I came to know this 16-year-old boy. He seemed bright, curious, outgoing. He he liked learning new things with his hands, like watching construction workers work on a house and like experimenting with how to use tools and stuff. So I really wanted to see, you know, and I don't know all the science behind at what age it's still possible to learn to read. Like, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of research that goes into this to say, you know, it has to be done before they're 10 years old or something. I don't know. But I just wanted to see, like, can I, first of all, can I motivate him to want to learn to read? Can I express to him that it would be useful and desirable and entertaining for him to learn this new skill that his entire life, like, he obviously knows that reading exists because most of the people around him can read, right? It's not like a totally destitute place where nobody can read. He, he was the exception in this case, right? And that's probably why he could still live not being able to read, because there are always people around him who can read if, if it becomes necessary to read, to tell him what something says. And I didn't know, and I, you know, could barely even speak his native language. So it was, it was kind of a challenge. Like, how can I communicate with this boy and try to convince him it's a good idea to learn to read? I'm a musician. I used to be a music teacher too. I used to teach things like guitar lessons. I, he was very interested when he saw me playing the guitar. I'm like, okay, let's, let's see if I can work with this. I've got his interest. I've got his attention here. I show him how to play a few chords and strum a rhythm and, and so forth. Basic things that he can just copy by seeing what I do and imitating what I do with my hands, right? And then I said, okay, so you want to learn some more chords? You want to learn how to play some more songs now? Yeah, yeah, of course I do. And I said, okay, well, uh, 
I, I draw a simple chord diagram, with which, if you're not familiar, is, is just basically six lines that represent the guitar strings and lines that go across that represents the frets on the guitar, and dots that show you where you're supposed to put your fingers. Like simple pictographic instructions. Like if you can recognize that this shape represents the guitar and your fingers, you can copy what you're supposed to do on the guitar. I am sure this boy had never done anything like this before in his life. But as soon as I explained the relationship, I showed him, look, remember that chord I taught you, C major? This is what it looks like when I write it down. Do you see how this looks like your hand? And he gets it. Like, okay, well, uh, what about this chord that I've never shown you before? Can you play D now? It takes him, you know, several minutes of experimenting and, and trying, and, and he eventually gets it. He says, okay, I can arrange my fingers like I see the instructions shown on this crude little pictographic <laughs> diagram, right? And so that's, to me, that was like the beginning of translating written instructions to mental concepts with real-world application, which is what reading is, right? Reading an alphabet, that's what you're doing. It's just a lot more permutations of how letters get turned into words and instructions. And so I used that as the basis to show him, look, this is a useful skill to have. If you can represent how written instructions translate to real actions and concepts, you can do more things. Right? Because otherwise I would have to teach you, show you directly how to play every single song you would ever want to play on the guitar. But if you can read these pictographic instructions, you can do this by yourself mostly. And then eventually that turned into, can, can you read the letters A through G that we use to name the notes on the guitar? He, he couldn't do that initially when we started because they were just random symbols to him. Like he knew the English language existed, of course, but I started using, look, if we say A, this is the note I mean. If I say B, this is the note I mean. And that's just seven letters that we use. But eventually that turned in, now can you write your name? Can you see how if you use these letters, it creates the sound that you associate with your name, right? Like just, just one step at a time, just seeing what are his limits, what will he stay engaged in? And I, you know, I didn't offer a full literacy training to this boy. I didn't even know him that long, right? So it wasn't enough time to like really teach him how to read. But I know that eventually he was able to use a smartphone to do basic tasks. So he must be reading to some degree. Like he must have at least learned how to open various apps on the smartphone and input very, very basic instructions. I don't know to what extent, but it was a very interesting, I guess I'd never worked with someone at such a remedial stage like that and actually tried to, to put in the most basic infrastructure of understanding written symbols to concepts and actions, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I imagine if, if you had more time to work with him, you might have been able to kind of jump from looking at the, um, I'm, I'm terrible with music words, but yeah, looking, looking at the, what, what, what's the name of it again? The a chord music? diagram. Chord diagram. It. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I don't it wasn't like a complicated sheet music with like a staff and <laughs> okay. lots of dots and notes. That's, that's much more difficult, but certainly possible yeah. too. He could have learned that if he had enough interest in mm -hmm. music. But I, I imagine the theory is that you could jump from the chord diagram into more, uh, more, more like proper reading because, um, would you say, I mean, the, 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 um, the moral, the, the kind of story message that I got from that is when there's a, when there's a, a kind of a clear motivation, it becomes a lot easier to learn when you're learning yes. for a purpose and not just, you know, Hey, study this so you can pass the exam. You know, you've actually yeah. got something you want to do. Um, is if, that, if he'd gone to a yeah. conventional school and they just yelled at him until he conformed, <laughs> do you think he would have wanted to learn to read? Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe as a child that would have worked with it, but at the time he's already a teenager though, like how much internal resistance would you have to overcome to force him to do this thing he's never done before and doesn't see any reason why he should do?
Yeah, I, I think that also links back to what we said before about how like a lot of people might get good at English by playing video games, because in order to kind of enjoy the game and play the game, you have to engage with the English in the game. Mm -hmm. And and, and the when, more when complex the game, the more language is required. With something like Super Mario mm -hmm. Brothers from the 80s or 90s that <laughs> we probably grew up on, it's it's as simple as you know, push A to jump and push B to run. Like, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty much all you need to understand to play the game to the fullest possible extent. But nowadays... You want to be playing team-based online shooter games like Overwatch or Valorant or Fortnite or whatever is popular now. Um, you know, and I only have a passing familiarity with these things, but I see how in-depth and how much people need to communicate, how much more complex the concepts they need to understand are. They need to coordinate with strangers instantly. Uh, it requires a much better working understanding of language and, and various dynamics of the game. And so... You know, video games get a bad rap a lot of the time for good reason. They got lots of problems associated with them too, but they also provide an opportunity for this immersive world that requires new ways of thinking and communicating that they would never be exposed to otherwise. And if you're not recognizing that as a language teacher, what are you doing? Like, look at the huge opportunity in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I've got a student who who plays a lot of video games, but his his vocabulary is amazing. Like some of the words he uses, is like, well, that's like, you know, we'll have a group lesson, but the word he uses, I feel like is too advanced for the group class. Mm -hmm. Like the other students would, it's just not quite at their level yet. So uh, yeah, sometimes it's quite amazing what you can learn through the games. Maybe one last thing I really want to get to, I really wanted to get to this because I wrote down a really good quote that I loved um, from the book because this is about pronunciation. I get, mm -hmm. I get questions all the time about pronunciation and uh, accents and people often message me. I'm, I feel like I imagine you might have got this too, saying, "Oh, I love your accent. How can I talk exactly like you? I wanna, mm. I wanna sound just like you. That's my goal." And I'm, you know, I'm always, "Well, that's very kind of you. I'm flattered, but on the other hand, I don't know if that's the best goal to have. I don't, I don't think a world where everyone sounded like me would be would be great." Um, so anyway, the quote that I wrote down is something like, "Emulating someone else's manner of speaking English." is like singing another person's song. Uh, no matter how talented they are, few singers will be able to sound like Whitney Houston. And I should, I should also, I don't want to embarrass you, but I should point out, this is a good reason to listen to the audio version ah, of the book, because yeah. you get to hear your amazing singing on that bit. <laughs> and I Will Always Love You, the classic example of like yeah. the karaoke song that everybody wishes they were good enough to sing, but they usually just sound awful when they try <laughs> to actually sound like Whitney Houston. Because you feel like you could out. in your head until, until it comes out, yeah. Um, so I, I really loved that quote, um, kind of emulating someone else's speaking. So uh, I guess my question then would be, how can learners uh, improve their accent, improve their pronunciation without emulating, without copying someone directly? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's about understanding yourself your own way of speaking and expressing yourself naturally, right? Not as an imitation of something external you heard, except in the case like if you're an actor trying to play a certain character who grew up in, in the Midwest of the U.S. or something, then there's a very specific way that you should speak. Like uh, Henry Cavill playing Superman does a very good job of this. You wouldn't even know he was British until you heard him speaking out of character. Or, or as Geralt in The Witcher, he, he seems very good at adopting very specific ways of speaking, right? I don't even know how he does it, right? Um, 
But for most people, that's not what they're trying to do, of course. They're not trying to play a character or do a celebrity impression or something. They're just trying to speak and be understood and express themselves authentically in a new language. So often, when I'm working with somebody who still struggles to sound natural and not clunky and awkward and stilted as they're speaking English, like most foreign learners, when they're at the intermediate stage, will sound like they have a very artificially restrained way of speaking English, like they're only using 20 to 30% of their vocal range when talking or their, their emotive range, I will ask them to speak their native language with me first, even if I don't understand it, right? Like even if it's Hindi or something, like something I, I have no way of understanding uh, exactly what they're saying or what the normal way of expressing an idea in Hindi might be. I'm just listening for the differences in how dynamic their use of their voices when they're speaking Hindi their native language, compared to how they're now trying to force themselves to speak English. And it's always like two or three times as emotive and expressive in their native language. And I say to them, even though I have no idea what you just said to me, I can clearly see how much more you are expressing yourself when you speak the native language you are comfortable with and you know how it's supposed to sound. When you speak English, you're just talking like this all the time and using a very neutral tone and not using the full range of human expression. Do you see the problem with that? Can you say something like, oh my God, I'm so excited right now. I'm so glad you're here in an excited tone that sounds natural to you. Can you say, I'm so angry at you for breaking my favorite toy or whatever. <laughs> you, it's like teaching them how to act or something. Like they're not used to expressing these emotions in a foreign language. They don't know what the appropriate way to do that is. So you have to really like guide them into it until eventually they start speaking a bit more with the same emotive range that they do naturally in their native language. Otherwise, they just always sound like a robot that's technically saying the correct thing in English, but does not sound like they're expressing themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've seen, I, I feel like I see it a lot on Instagram with people who kind of speak like that. I, I don't want to kind of throw shade at anyone or and criticize anyone but yeah i feel like i often see people who it's quite clear they, they've put a lot of effort into their accent pronunciation and they they sound quite british or whatever accent mm -hmm. they're going they, they sound like fairly good but it just doesn't sound quite natural it sounds forced as you said it sounds robotic and i guess that's they're not embracing their own speaking voice within the language uh i, I don't know i, I I can't think of any tips myself, but uh, do, do you have any ideas of how people can try to encourage their own way of speaking without copying? It's about spontaneous expression without overthinking it, right? When oh, you're, when you're speaking your native good. language and you don't have some kind of external reference of how you're supposed to sound, you spontaneously express yourself, which will be a little bit different for each person. You can do this in reading exercises too. If you're reading a sentence in a book, you don't know exactly how the author intended that to be emoted and emphasized and pausing in certain places unless you wrote it or something. Um, but when I read it, you know, I, I just to give an example of how this might sound when an American reads it. I, you know, I make sure they understand that the way I'm reading this is not like the standard absolute correct way to read this. It's just how I interpret the words on the page combined with my personality. I pause here. I emphasize this word. I speed up here. I, my voice goes up here and down here because that's, that's the way I read. That's the way I talk. Your goal is to figure out the way you read and the way you talk as filtered through the English language. And no one can tell you exactly what that is. I can just tell you if it sounds natural or artificial to me when you do that, that I don't believe that that's what your natural expressive voice is. So keep experimenting with that until you find it. Mm, yeah. I, I feel like a good 
a good word to avoid for teachers is the word rule when it comes to this kind of stuff. And maybe the word pattern can be quite useful. Um, I, I try to do that. Like you will see some patterns in intonation and things like that. And yeah, and pronunciation, but th there's rarely like any rules there, right? Because it, it might be that a lot of sentences go down at the end in intonation, but there are many cases where that's not true. So uh, yeah, maybe it's not a good idea to study these mm -hmm. Rules what are you talking like about? What are you talking about? Like, you see what I mean? Like, how much does yeah. the communication change just based on how I'm showing my emotions by how I inf in intonate and inflect that sentence, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that's really hard to just give rote instructions for and memorize how you're supposed to say every word. It's like those automatic uh, customer service messages, which I also give as an example in the book. Like, sometimes... They just record individual words or even individual syllables that they then compile together into a, a Frankenstein sentence, right? That, welcome to our automated customer service line. Please press seven now to talk to a customer representative, right? <laughs> it should be welcome to our automated customer service line. Please press seven now to talk to a representative, right? There's a flow, a natural, and the whole thing is taken together, not just the individual parts, but they're not taught to think that way. They just focus on, the, am I saying this word correctly? Am I saying this word correctly? Am I saying this word correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like I could talk to you for ages. Um, and e even though we have spoken... <laughs> <laughs> I'm already losing my voice, better not. But even though we have spoken a while, um, we definitely haven't got close to exhausting uh, the contents of the book. So before we sign off today do you want to mention again where people can find the book and um sure maybe you as well if you have any social media presence i don't know yeah so again the book is called our global lingua franca an educator's guide to spreading english for efl doesn't work i primarily wrote it for those kinds of independent individual teachers who see what's wrong even if they're stuck in like a conventional schooling setting where they don't have much freedom in how they teach but even just understanding these things will probably subtly influence how you present whatever material you're working with and and you'll probably start to see a lot more rapid results towards practical english fluency assuming that's your goal that you actually care about this goal you can find it on amazon or other major book sites like barnes and noble if you want to check out me it's uh, i'm at gregorydeal.net Deal is spelled D-I-E-H-L, or feel free to add me on Facebook. I'm happy to talk about this stuff with anyone who's interested. Amazing. And I will link everything up to make it easy and, and clickable. But um, yeah, Gregory, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed the chat and I uh, hope I'm sure the listeners have as well. You have been listening to the Level Up English podcast. If you would like to leave a question to be answered on a future episode, then please go to levelupenglish.school forward slash podcast. That's levelupenglish.school slash podcast. And I'll answer your question on a future episode. Thanks for listening.